last in our series next week, I'll be preaching about our 2020 vision, where we're going in the next 12 months or so. But how about we pray and we'll look at this passage, the last of the sections in Romans 8. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Uh, We pray that as we look at it a little more closely now, that you will bring it to life in our hearts and our minds, so that we can mould our lives around your truths. Amen. Friends, do you ever have any doubts? You know, doubts about whether or not you really are acceptable to God. You find yourself thinking sometimes, what if I am wrong about all this? Or maybe, maybe you have different uh, doubts are a little different. Maybe, maybe you've experienced some really nasty things in life. Or you look around the world and you see some of the terrible things that are going on and you wonder whether there really is a God who says he loves us. What if all this wonderful stuff that Paul has been saying in Romans chapter 8 about God saving us and God adopting us and God justifying us and God taking us to heaven, what if that doesn't apply to you because you don't really deserve it? What if all things work together for good for a whole lot of Christian people but not necessarily for you because in some ways you don't measure up like they do? What if all things won't work together for your good? Well, they're the very questions that Paul deals with in this section, the last bit of Romans chapter 8. We're at verse 31 and this section starts off with this. What then shall we say in response to all this? So like all good teachers, Paul's going to answer. He's made some statements about God loving us, God adopting us, God taking us to heaven. He's now going to deal with some of the questions that might rise in people's hearts and minds as a result of all that about his teaching. He's going to deal with four questions people might ask or four objections they might make. And the first in verse 31. He says, basically, what is, what if there is a power that can stop God from saving us? That's in verse 31. You know, Paul, you've said nothing can take away our salvation because God's in charge of the whole process. Remember that? Those whom God foreknew, he he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. God's in charge of the whole process. But what if there is something, you know, some power or or some being that can get away in the way of us being saved and adopted? You've probably seen those those horror movies, you know, where, where demon possession occurs. You know, and, and the priest or someone holds up a cross shaking in fear because of the power of evil. What if something like that can get in the way? Because, you know, some people think that good and evil are in balance. That for all the good influences in this world, there's a, a, an equal and opposite power for evil. You know, a bit like yin and yang in Eastern philosophy. You know, the good and the, and the evil must balance each other out. Or, or, you know, some people believe in karma. You know, that if you do good, good comes to you. And if you do bad, bad comes to you. There's sort of this, this balance going on. So what if, what if there's some evil balance against God's goodness towards us? Uh, we do know, don't we, that there are spiritual forces that do challenge God's power. And they do seek to damage God's people. You know, witchcraft, uh, evil spirits... Paul describes the devil, doesn't he, as a roaring lion trying to devour us by making us suffer. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 
So maybe those evil spiritual forces can get in the way of God's plans for us. That's the objection. And look at Paul answers it. If God is for us, who can be against us? Isn't that an amazing thing? God is for us. If you've given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've repented of your sin and turned to him for forgiveness, God is for you, says the Bible. That's, a, that's a, an amazing thing. He's not sort of neutral. You know, he's not like Switzerland in neutrality. You're not taking sides. He's not disinterested in you. Listen to how the Bible describes God's involvement with these people. For instance, God says to Abraham, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. God's a shield for his people. And he's their reward. And look at Psalm 23. David says, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, or the valley of the shadow of death in other versions, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God walks with his people. And again, God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And again, that's God speaking to someone particularly, but he's speaking to his people generally as well. And again, Isaiah 40 verse 11. God tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. Friends, God is for us. We walk with God. Uh, My old Sigung, my Kung Fu instructor, Henry Murray, um, uh, in his 70s now, but when he was competing, never lost a tournament, never lost a fight. Uh, He... uh, he used to instruct the Australian police force on self-defence. He's about 190 centimetres tall and he's built like a refrigerator. I kid you not. And if you had to go for a walk at night, if Henry was by your side, you did not fear anything. Seriously, the man was just a walking destruction machine. If God is for us, if the God of the universe If we walk with him, who can be against us? Seriously. That's the first objection he deals with. There is no power that can get in the way of God and his plans for his people. There is no power. Do you believe that? And then the second objection is this. What if if God's love falters? Verse 32. What if God's love for us, what if if he gets sick and tired of us? What if he gets weary of loving us? You know, it happens with us all the time, doesn't it? We fall in and out of love. We love people for a while and then they become our enemies. What if God gets weary of loving you? What if you, you wear him out? Could that happen? Can we fall in and out of God's love? Paul answers that with one of the most emphatic passages in the whole Bible. Look at what he says in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You know, Paul could have said, you know, God is love, friends. God is love. His love for you won't wane. But he does better than that. He bases his answer on the facts. He points to the cross. And he says, God gave up his son for us. Do you think that sort of love is ever going to fade? Do you think God would go to all the pain of making that sacrifice for you to later go back on it? Think about it for a moment, folks. God gave up his one and only son. Imagine the cost. A philosopher called Nicholas Walderstorff lost his son in a climbing accident. And he wrote a little book about his loss and grief and he called it Lament for a Son. And this is what he says. There's a hole in the world now. In the place where he was, there's now just nothing. A centre like no other of memory and hope and knowledge and affection which once inhabited the earth is gone. Only a gap remains. A perspective on this world, unique to this world, which once moved about within this world has been rubbed out. Only a void is left. There's nobody now who saw just what he saw, knows what he knew, remembers what he remembered, loves what he loved. A person, an irreplaceable person is gone. Never again will anyone apprehend the world quite the way he did. Never again will anyone inhabit the world the way he did. Questions I have can never now get answers. The world is emptier. My son is gone. Only a hole remains. A void, a gap, never to be filled. What did it cost the father to lose his son? Ladies and gentlemen, this love of God is a monumental love for you. Paul is saying, if God has already gone to those lengths, if he has already done the greatest thing, the greatest act of love imaginable, will he not finish the course? How can you possibly entertain the thought that his love for you might fade? He planned the death of his son with his son and the Holy Spirit before the creation of the world. They'd had this plan in place for millennia. This is an enormous love. Now some people think that what happened at the cross was human beings killed Jesus, but God says, I still love you and forgive you. They think that's what happened at the cross. You know, that sort of God is standing off horrified at what people did to his son, but still loving and forgiving them. That's what they think happens at the cross. And so they say the cross shows how much God loves us by his forgiveness. That is true. But it misses so much of the wonder and the glory of the cross. It misses it. God wasn't passively watching on, going, what are they doing to my son, but I'll still forgive them because I love them. That's not what happened on the cross. He was involved in the death of Jesus. 
In Acts chapter 2, Peter says that God's plans were carried out at the cross. Look at it. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, says Peter. And again in Colossians chapter 2, Paul says that God nailed our sins to the cross when Jesus died. Jesus died in our place as our representative. He was punished for our sins. God's own son, the radiance of the father's glory, voluntarily allowed himself to be put to death for our sins. Is that the sort of love that's ever going to grow cold? Or going to run out maybe? If that was the Trinity's determined plan from all eternity, his love for us is not going to fade. That's Paul's argument. The third objection that people might raise to, you know, maybe all things won't work out together for my good. It's in the form of two questions. It's in verse 33 and 34. Who will bring any charge against God's chosen people? Who's going to bring any charge about those whom God has chosen? Who's going to condemn them? You know, we might go, what if I sin in such a way that God can't or won't forgive me? Despite all he's said, what if God actually won't accept me on that last day. And Paul's answer here has three parts, folks. Here it is. Firstly, he points out that it's God who chooses us. Notice that. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? He's painting the picture of someone who will stand up at the judgment day and say to God, I'm sorry, God, but you can't allow Bruce into heaven. Do you know what he's done? Do you really know what he's really like? You made a wrong choice there, God. Really? God makes a wrong choice? God gets it wrong? Can God ever make the wrong choice? No. That is an incredible wonder, ladies and gentlemen. God makes no mistakes and he chooses us. If you have come to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance for your sin and you're trusting his death on the cross for you to take away your sin and your punishment, you've been chosen by God. Secondly, he says, it's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? This is the answer of the person that says, oh, God, you made a mistake. You know, look at this person. They are a sinner. He says, it's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? We've already seen that back in verse 30, if you were here a week or two ago. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified, it says in the Bible. It is God who makes us right with him. Who can charge us? And we need to be clear here, ladies and gentlemen. Justification is more than just forgiveness. God does more than forgive you when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he justifies you. That means he makes you just and holy. Forgiveness doesn't do that. Forgiveness doesn't change who you are, but justification does. I'll give you an example. If a police officer shoots 
and kills someone in the line of duty, there will always be an investigation and an inquiry. If the shooting is deemed justified, that's the word that's often used, it doesn't mean the police officer has an excuse or a defence at law. It's not like they commit a defence but they get forgiven. It means they've not committed a crime at all. It's not a crime. It's a justifiable homicide. And when God justifies us, he doesn't just forgive us. He says, Jesus died in your place for your sin, therefore there is no offence that could be charged against you. You are righteous. Isn't that stunning? That is stunning. You know, there's some, some Christian teaching around at the moment that doesn't like justification. It doesn't like the idea. It just wants to focus on God's love and forgiveness. Oh, it misses the point entirely. What a mighty God who says no offence because of what Jesus did for you. And you can see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for instance. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that amazing? And that's not just being justified for our past offences. It's justified once and for all time. You are righteous, says God, going forward. Past, present and future. See, the evil one, he can accuse you and I of sin, of breaking God's law. He can do that all he likes, but it has no effect as far as God is concerned. That's the second reason. No one's going to bring any charges against us. The third reason is this. Who is it that has been appointed judge on the last day? Who is it that's going to judge all of humankind? The Bible says it's the Lord Jesus. Acts chapter 17 verse 31. Jesus has been appointed judge of the living and the dead. Now look at what Paul says in our passage. Jesus... The one who's going to judge us, he's interceding for us with the Father. Isn't that extraordinary? So what's the application of all this? Sometimes we can wonder whether or not we're good enough for God. You know, even though we know the truth of all the Bible teaches, there's that little nagging doubt. We may doubt whether we love God enough, maybe. Maybe we will fail as Christians. There is this worry that I, that I can't be sure at any one time whether I'm in or out of God's family. You know how it goes sometimes for us? But this passage says, no, that's not how it works. That is not how it works. If you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because you're one of God's chosen ones, he justifies you. And Jesus, the judge, intercedes for you. It doesn't depend upon how you feel. Do you see that? God's word always trumps how we feel. The facts trump how we feel. And then the last objection, what if I get separated from God's love? It's the fourth question. We all know people, don't we, who've gone through some terrible experience in life and they've stopped believing Paul lists some of the things that might separate us from God's love. He mentions troubles. 
troubles? Will the problems of life cause me to give up on God? Or will hardships do it? Why did God allow me to grow up in a deprived family? What about persecutions? He lists those there. What if I'm discriminated against? Or worse, because I'm a believer. What if the pressure is put on me to give up my faith? What if it becomes illegal for me to worship God and obey my God? Will I, maybe I'll give up on God then. What about famine? We're in the midst of a terrible drought. The rain has come, but it's not enough yet. Who would blame farmers for giving up their faith in a God who doesn't seem to care about them? About them going bankrupt and losing their homes? Or what about nakedness? He lists nakedness there. Being so poor you can't even afford food or clothing. Would that make you give up on God? And danger. He lists danger there. Look at that. Being, you know, fear of death. Maybe fear of illness. Putting myself at risk. Would my desire for comfort and the easy life pull me away from God's love? Or what about the sword? He mentions the sword there, violence. Would I give up on God because he allows me to experience violence? Surely that could separate me from God. Or what about war and all that it brings in terms of death and destruction and fear and loss? You know, when I look at the world and all the suffering caused by war and famine and poverty, will it stop God being involved in me? Will it stop me believing in God? Because those things have caused so many, it seems, to give up their faith. Look at the passage. Look what he quotes to summarize all that. As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That is very confronting, is it not? That is Paul's description of the life of Christians. All day they are in dire peril, fearing for their lives. And that's not just persecution for being Christians. This is famine and, war, and warfare and troubles and hardships. And I want to ask, what do the prosperity teachers, those who say God wants you to be wealthy, how do they deal with passages like this? For your sake we face death all day long, says Paul. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. Trouble will come if it hasn't already. Terrible things will happen. He pretty well covers all the possibilities, I think, in general terms, doesn't he? Maybe these things will separate us from Jesus. But notice here that he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He's not talking about our love for God or for Jesus, but Jesus' love for you and for me. Paul is saying nothing will ever Stop Jesus loving us. Nothing. And we know it's, he's talking about Jesus' love because in verse 37 he says, Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Nothing can stop Jesus loving us. Not because we are so good or so wonderful or so righteous, but because he chose to set his love upon us. You know, when that little bawling, ugly baby was born. You know, and you held in your... I mean, seriously, folks, you know, they're wrinkly and they're... But aren't they beautiful? What is there to be lovely? Really, nothing. It's because you, for nine months, have chosen to set your love upon that child. Because that's your child. The child in the cot next in the maternity ward, eh, that's cute, but 
You don't love it like you love this one because you've set your love upon it. And that is what God does for you. He chooses you. He brings you to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and he sets his love upon you and nothing, nothing, nothing can separate you from that love. And because of that, Paul says, we are more than just survivors. We are more than just scraping through. We are more than conquerors, he says. Are you more than a conqueror? Or does your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ mean that it's sort of wavering and you're not sure he loves you enough? You're not sure whether you're good enough? You're not sure whether he's in control and working all things out for your good? You know, that, that sort of doubts and fears can take away the fact that we're more than conquerors. But he is trustworthy. That's what Paul has been saying here. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. God justifies us. He calls us. He sets his love upon us. We are more than conquerors, brothers and sisters. Why? Paul says, because I am convinced. I am convinced, he says. I am persuaded. The cross has showed him God's love. It has convinced him, convinced him, persuaded him that nothing can separate him from God's love. That's more than just warm, fuzzy feelings, isn't it? This is being persuaded, convinced. Friends, if you doubt God's love for you, go to this passage and read it through again and again and again. Troubles and hardships, they are not evidence that God does not love you. They are not evidence of that. Famine and nakedness and pain and suffering are not proof that God doesn't care for you or that you don't have enough faith. What a crappy argument that one is you hear from time to time. What a load of rubbish that sort of teaching is. It is a curse on the church. What is the evidence of God's love for you? The cross. Jesus' death in your place on the cross. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? That is the proof of God's love. Not how you feel, not what the circumstances of your life throw up at you, but the facts. And what is it that Paul is persuaded of? He says, I'm convinced, I'm persuaded that all things will get better. No, it's not what he says he's persuaded of. In fact, he was put to death for his faith. He languished in jail for a couple of years and then was put to death. No, he was persuaded that nothing could separate him from the love of God in Christ Jesus his Lord. Not even death or demons, not even angels. Notice something else here. What sort of love does God have for us? It's a love that's in Christ Jesus. Do you notice that? It was displayed in Jesus. It was lived out in Jesus and it comes through Jesus. There is no other way to God than through Jesus. There is no other way to have God's love for you, for you, 
God's love surrounding you than to have Jesus Christ as your Lord. In his prayer at the Last Supper, this is what Jesus says. I want the world to know that you have loved them. He's talking about his followers here, not the whole world. Get this, even as you have loved me. I want the world to know God. I want my disciples to know. I want the people of Menai Anglican to know that you love them in the same way that you love me. Isn't that extraordinary? And again in John 15, Jesus says to his disciples, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. That is an extraordinary thing, isn't it? God chose you. If you have repented, and folks, if you've not repented of your sins and turned to Jesus and relied upon him to get you into God's favour like this, into God's love, then you need to do that. Don't put that off. Because these promises are not for everybody. They're for those whom God calls into his family. Those who will humble themselves and accept his forgiveness and his grace. But if that's the case for you, if you've done that, God chose you. He called you. He justified you. And he's glorified you. All things work together for your good. It is true. The cross proves it. So get up off your weak knees. Unless you're praying, of course. You know, talk to yourself. Talk to your heart and your soul. And say, this might be bad, but God loves me and he is for me. And all things will work together for my good. Stop lamenting and start walking forward with your God. Stop wallowing in self-pity if that's where you are. There are times for grief. And there are times for focusing on the pain. There are times for getting better. I'm not talking about that. You need to work through those things. But, but underneath that all should be this, this strong, solid foundation that says, despite all that, despite what I feel, God is for me and nothing can separate me from his love. Let's pray. Father, what a mighty God you are for us. What a mighty Father. Oh, we want to thank you so much that nothing can ever separate us from your love for us in Christ Jesus. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will keep drawing our minds and our hearts back to these truths, that he will convince us of the truth that nothing can separate us from the love, your love in Christ Jesus, that, that principalities and powers and demons and angels and power and suffering, and none of those things can ever separate us, not even death itself from your love. And I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning who are faltering. Pray for those, Lord, who are suffering in some way or other. And I pray that they will work that through in your love, knowing that whatever the circumstances of life throw at them, you are for them and that they walk with you. Amen.